every moment where you have felt abandoned, where you have felt betrayed, where you have felt there's no one in my corner. Jesus felt that. Hey, hey, welcome to the Live Like It's True podcast, where we talk through some of the most outlandish stories in the Bible and what it would look like to live like those stories are true. I'm your host, Shannon Popkin, and my hope is that these conversations will inspire you to better know the story, share the story, and live the story. What pain or distress or heartache or hurt are you experiencing today? Does it seem more fitting to sit in the darkness here on Good Friday than to dance in the sunlight? If so, I hope that today's conversation about the true story in the dark will help you bring these dark emotions to Jesus, the one who knows exactly how you feel. In this true story of Easter series, we're taking a look at several of the scenes of Easter. And the one that we're considering today is that three-hour period of time when it's as if God threw a blanket of darkness over the scene of His Son hanging on the cross. I can't think of a better guest to have this conversation with than my friend Asherita Chuchu. Asherita is an author, a speaker, and the host of the Prayers of Rest podcast, which I got to be a guest on recently. She's also the author of many books, including a brand new devotional called Prayers of Rest, which will help you pray through 50 different psalms. And two of those psalms we're going to talk about here on this episode. Listen through to the end of this episode and I'll tell you how you can have a chance to win a copy of this beautiful new book that's releasing in just a few weeks. Before we get there, I want to invite you to grab a copy of my brand new Live Like It's True workbook. It's a free downloadable resource. I hope you'll go check it out. There's a link in the show notes, and it includes a four-page journal, which will prompt you to think through the four reasons that we often believe the false narratives of the world rather than the true story from the Bible. Also, I wanted to let you know we won't have a retelling episode this week. We kind of shifted things around. We're releasing this episode on Good Friday. But if you haven't had a chance yet, I'd love for you to go listen to our bonus episode on sharing the true story of Easter. And now let's turn our attention to this conversation with Asherita Chuchu about the true story in the dark. Asherita, it's so great to be with you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Shannon. It's my joy. Yes. So you and I met maybe a few years ago at a conference, I think, and I've so just enjoyed you inviting us to pursue rest, right? Is that sort of your passion? Yeah, I would say the the big part of my ministry is helping women enjoy Jesus through mm-hmm. creative Bible habits. And the last year or so, one of those Bible habits has been prayer and resting in prayer and rhythms of prayer and rhythms of rest. So that's kind of been the the habit that we've focused on these last couple of years, but we've previously focused on Bible study, on fasting, on different spiritual habits, but really looking for Jesus in that. So not this empty routine or something that we do because we want to check it off or we don't want to feel guilty, but rather what does God have for us of himself Mm. in the midst of this? Which is perfect for today because today is Good Friday. And 
some of us, you know, we're, we're looking for a way to connect the, the day that we celebrate Good Friday with the spiritual significance. So we're going to talk about that today, but I want to start with a story that is kind of empty of the spiritual <laughs> significance. I remember a few years ago, we went to this Good Friday service. It was at noon and it was in our home church. It was a nearby community church and they did communion a little different than our home church. And we had our kids with us. And so at this church, you went up and got the little communion packet and <laughs> it was a, a cracker and some juice all in one little, and I know we're using those more now that with COVID, you know, we're not passing things as much, but that's how this church did it. And so we went up and I was trying to explain to my toddler, like, no, honey, you're not going to get communion. I had explained it to him earlier, but to him, it just looked like everybody else was getting a snack and he wasn't. And so we are walking back to our seat. And he is wailing in my arms, crying, I want a snack. I want a snack. And we're just like, oh, this is just, just so wrong right now because he's being disruptive. And there is some of that in Good Friday. There's this juxtaposition. We approach Good Friday with some childishness. And we're going to see that in the story we're going to read, looking at it with completely the wrong lens. So I understand you had a tradition as a child. Tell us about your Good Friday tradition. Yeah. So I grew up as a missionary kid in Romania and part of the rhythm of a celebrating Easter on Good Friday, we would all fast. And so I think I was seven the first time I was a part of this up through my teenage years. And it's something we continue now as a family with our own children that that meant no food at all until 3 PM, which is the moment that we commemorate Jesus actually giving up his spirit and dying. And I think I was maybe 12 or 13, the first time that the strangeness of my, my dueling desires struck me mm-hmm. because here I was like 11 AM, 12 PM, 1 PM. And I'm hungry. My stomach is grumbling, growling. And my parents didn't by any means force us to do it, but it was definitely an invitation to experience part of like the smallest fraction of physical discomfort so that our minds might be drawn to Jesus' sufferings that day on our behalf. So there I am, you know, it's early afternoon. It's like, I just want to eat and also knowing, okay, 3 PM comes around and I can eat, but the reason I can eat is because Jesus died Mm -hmm. like that. (laughs) I'm looking forward to something, but that marker is the mark of Jesus' death. And so it's not really, uh, it just kind of brought a physicality, a concreteness to something that can feel so abstract to children, especially like, okay, I I understand Jesus died, but what does that mean? And and what are the implications of that? And so that, you know, it just stays with me even now, as I think of Good Friday and, and going through this now as an adult and inviting my children into that to experience, again, just the smallest fraction of discomfort so that we might be mindful of Jesus' sufferings on this day, that this day is not like any other day. It is a day set aside to remember. Mm -hmm. So let's do that. As we read this text, let's remember together, and we're going to talk through 
just what happened at 3 PM on good Friday. So Ashrita, would you, we're going to, we're going to chunk this passage up into two sections. So I'd love for you to read Matthew 27 verses 45 through 50. And you're reading in the NIV translation, right? Mm -hmm. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So these are the final moments of Jesus's life. From 12 until 3, there's this darkness, this darkness that falls. Now, this is a real moment in history. It's a real time and a real place with real people. There's a real wooden cross with physical nails And Jesus is in a physical body, yet this is representing something that is so far beyond the physical. This is a a spiritual event. And the Bible is a story about God redeeming his people. And this is the climax of the story. Like this is the moment in time when we're going to move from climax to resolution well, I guess you could argue that, that the resurrection is actually <laughs> the resolution, but, but this is the moment in time. And, and we're going to look at some supernatural things that happen because uh, we've been talking on this podcast about how the Bible does a lot of show don't tell. So, you know, God could have given us just this list of like, here's who I am. Here's how we're going to take care of the problem of your sin and delineating all of the facts about Jesus. But this darkness is more of a show. Don't tell. What do you see in the darkness here? Asherito? What what's going on? Why is it dark? Yeah. I mean, the Bible does not tell us why it was dark. <laughs> and so at this point, it's, it's more a move of observation, some interpretation, some speculation. What we do know is that scripture uses the metaphors of light and darkness. Oftentimes uh, light is clearly pointing to God. Jesus is called the light of the world. He says, whoever comes to me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And on the other side of that, the enemy of our souls, the Satan is the one who dwells in darkness. So evildoers revel in doing their evil deeds in darkness. And and so there's this clash of light and dark. So I think that's part of what we can see moving here in that from a purely physical, temporal perspective, it did look like darkness was coming over the land, not just physically, but also in snuffing out the light of the world, Mm -hmm. it looked like spiritual darkness had won. And we know that Satan and all the fallen angels are not omniscient. They don't know the future. They don't know you know, they probably had knowledge of the prophecies because that had been revealed by God through his prophets, but they didn't know how this was going to play out. And so I think it's not too far-fetched to look at this moment and to say all of hell celebrated Mm. that the light of the world was being snuffed out Mm. and that darkness was covering the land. But 
that's just the beginning. That's just part one of act one of what is happening here. And so we are a people called out of darkness into the light, but we can sit in the tension of this dark moment. I, it, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we rush past this mm-hmm. to the resurrection, because this makes us feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like let's not dwell in darkness too long, but, but I think what Jesus does here in this moment of darkness is such a beautiful moment of how as a fully God, fully man, as fully human, how to grapple with the darkness in our own lives. Mm, Absolutely. But what do we see Jesus doing in the darkness? And I just, I mean, I just picture this eeriness in the scene, you know, where you've got this crucifixion on the edge of town and you've got people passing by and you've got soldiers watching over Jesus and he's hanging on this cross and he's bleeding and in agony. And what does this part of the story show us about Jesus? That is just amazing. What do you see? Yeah. What, what strikes me, Shannon is everything you described, right? For any typical person, this would be agony Mm. on purely on a physical level, right? Just what Jesus had gone through up to this point on an emotional level, He had been abandoned by all his friends. (laughs) There was no one standing there in solidarity with him. He had been betrayed by one of the 12. Mm -hmm. So there is this physical agony. There's emotional agony. You know, just think of having one of your own friends betray you, Mm -hmm. having someone gossip behind your back. Like how hurtful is that to us? Mm -hmm. And now multiply that by being betrayed to your own death. That is the weight of what Jesus is carrying. And yet, Shannon, I think the heaviest pain and weight on Jesus here is neither of those, Mm. but rather the spiritual pain of being shut out from experiencing the love of God Mm. toward him. And I think we have to be careful here because there is no separation in the Godhead. Mm -hmm. There, There is no separation between the father and the son. And we have to hold the doctrine of the Trinity carefully. And yet in a very real sense, the son in the flesh did not experience God's loving presence. That there was a, a separation of experiencing God with him because here Jesus is carrying the weight of every sin ever committed by every human in the world. Mm. I mean, just think of just taking one sin, just thinking of every unkind word every ever spoken by me, by you, by every person listening, by those in our families, by those who are alive right now in this moment in history, and then multiply that by all the years throughout history, mm. every human, just every unkind word. Mm. And that's just one sin of hundreds. And Jesus was bearing that weight on himself here on the cross. And one thing that stands out to me are these words in verse 46, which can feel a little bit strange, especially since they're brought to us in the Aramaic and yet they're translated for us. They're interpreted for us. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And I said earlier that this scene shows us how Jesus handled the darkness. Mm. 
as a human. And, and what I love is (laughs) that he turns to the Psalms. Mm -hmm. I know that there have been times in my life where the pain has felt so great that I had no words to pray where there is no eloquent way of asking God to intercede. There is, there is a groan. (laughs) There is a God, God. And, and we have the promise later in the new Testament that because of what Jesus did here in this moment, he sent his spirit and now his spirit intercedes for us. And so when we groan, his spirit is groaning for us before the father. And so we have that privilege, uh, but here in this moment that had not yet happened. And so Jesus is groaning under the weight of all the sin on top of the physical and emotional burdens. And he turns to the Psalms. And this is actually a quote from Psalm 22. If it's okay with you, Shannon, I'd love to read a few other verses Mm -hmm. because I think it gives us a fuller picture of Jesus' experience because we only have these words that are written down for us and recorded. But what we know from Jewish culture is that these boys would memorize the Psalms. The Psalms Mm -hmm. were their prayer book, (laughs) boys and girls, men and women. And so when Jesus is quoting the first verse from Psalm 22, most likely it's not a leap of imagination to say this whole Psalm was on his heart and in his mind. Yeah. They'd often use, it was sort of like a hyperlink. Mm -hmm. They would take a phrase and he was thinking of this whole Psalm. He only quoted one verse of it, but yeah, go ahead and read some of those verses because there are several things in that Psalm that Jesus is living the experience of the Psalmist. Yeah. So it's a, it's a long Psalm 31 verses. I I won't read it all, but if you're listening to this, I encourage you to open your Bible to Psalm 22 and take time today to read the whole Psalm. But here's verse one, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night. And yet I have no rest but you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by people. I mean, can you picture Jesus thinking this, praying this, right? We know from Isaiah 53 that his face at this point was nothing to look at, Mm -hmm. that he was despised and rejected by men. And so Jesus, like you said, Shannon, is living this out in the moment. Verse seven, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. I mean, this is almost a direct quote Mm -hmm. from what the people at the cross were saying, right? Mm -hmm. He's crying out. Let's see if God's going to save him. Mm -hmm. This is the agony in Jesus' heart. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because the distress is near and there's no one to help. Every moment where you have felt lonely, every moment where you have felt abandoned, where you have felt betrayed, where you have felt there's no one in my corner. Jesus felt that. He felt it first and he felt it fully. Mm -hmm. 
And because he felt it on the cross, we have hope that it doesn't have to be that way for us. But let's not rush to the glory of the resurrection and the empty tomb and not sit here in the darkness, in the distress, in the heartache, in the hurt. Because what is happening today as we observe Good Friday is Jesus is inviting us to be honest about all those emotions in our heart today, mm-hmm. to be honest with him and say, yes, that's resonating. I'm, I'm feeling that myself. And I want to bring that to you and invite you to do a work in my heart today. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Jesus is experiencing the separation, this agony. And I think it's enlarged because he is completely innocent, right? He has not sinned. He does not deserve any of this judgment that he's experiencing on our behalf. And look at what's happening around him as he experiences this crushing agony. We've got guys, soldiers joking around, mocking, joking about the, these words that he has just spoken. I mean, these precious words where he's crying out when he says in the Greek, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Thank you. And so they hear, oh, that sounds like Elijah. He's calling Elijah. Hey, let's give him something to drink. You know, the Moody commentary says this isn't an act of compassion. They want him to be able to speak more clearly so that they can mock him. And they're like, let's leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to him. I mean, it's just, it's, it's sickening. The juxtaposition of this simple-minded mocking. Yeah, there's definitely that, but I think we need to be careful of judging them with (laughs) the benefit that we have now of the whole story. Because I think a better question is if I were at the foot of the cross, which character would I be? And I would like to think that I would be one of the women weeping, but in this moment in history, the Jews had been waiting for a deliverer and they had a very clear picture of who they thought that would be and what he would do. And it did not involve dying on the cross. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Jesus was now nailed to a Roman cross with that inscription, here is the King of the Jews. It was pouring salt into the wound of the Jews who had been hoping for a Messiah. Mm -hmm. But before we judge them too harshly, let's think in our own lives, how many times do we expect God to do things a certain way, Mm -hmm. right? We have a a very clear picture of what we want him to do, how we want him to answer a prayer. And we might not mock him if he doesn't come through, but there's a definite sense of disappointment of you've let me down. Mm -hmm. You did not do what I thought you would do. And so (laughs) my encouragement and and what I try to be mindful as I'm reading scripture and and these types of stories is to not be too quick to point a finger at others Mm -hmm. and say, how dare they, but rather to ask God's spirit to search my heart and say, God, is there any inkling of this type of attitude in my heart? Would you show me, are there moments when I've acted this way? And, and would you change my heart? Would you help me humble myself at the cross? Mm, yes. My first inclination is, yeah, I want to scold them. 
but far more helpful is to see myself in them. Because when I see the darkness closing in on a life, sometimes I am just unaware of how deeply God is at work, right? And these soldiers have absolutely no idea. They are just looking at the physical. They are completely unaware of the spiritual realm and all that God is accomplishing in this pivotal moment. So I want to also look at Jesus, how Jesus is responding there at the very end of his life. I just, as I noticed that word yielded, he cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I often talk about control and surrender being opposite each other and surrender. We often think of that word as like this passive, like, you know, we're just not doing something in that moment, but surrendering for Jesus in this moment is the most active work because he is restraining I mean, he did not have to take any of those tortured breaths on the cross for hours. Now he has been suffering and he didn't, he didn't have to, he chose it. He says, no one has taken my life from me. I lay it down. He's the lamb laying down his life. So there's this strength in this yielding. I mean, commentators have noticed how unusual it would be that you could cry out that loudly at the end. And so we don't see Jesus just fading into the darkness. No, he is strongly yielding every single moment until the end. He is yielding to the father and he's doing it for us. That is just astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here in our text in Matthew, we see Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. We're told by Luke that when he cried out with a loud voice, what he said was, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. And again, that is a quote from the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Jesus was again, quoting from his prayer book. And, and I, if I may, I think it would be so helpful to look at Psalm 31 at the whole context to see what exactly is Jesus doing in this last cry on the cross. So here we're at Psalm 31 verse one, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of refuge for me, a mountain fortress to save me. Again, this is this is the cry of Jesus' heart when he's hearing the soldiers and the crowds ridiculing him. This is what's going through his head. There's no self-pity. There's no self-condemnation. There's no feelings of God has abandoned me and I'm on my own. No, he's aware of that distance between him and the father, but, but this is how he processes it. Verse three, for you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me for your name's sake. You will free me from the net that is secretly set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand, I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. And that would have been Jesus' last words. Into your hand, I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord God of truth. That's powerful. So, I mean, we have an astonishing Jesus to the very end, and we have some very unfitting reactions to him. 
But now we're going to see God responding to this death. And we're going to see some more show don't tell in this text. So Asherita, would you continue on in our text reading verses 51? This is Matthew 27, 51 through 54. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. What are some astonishing things happening in this moment that Jesus dies? Okay. So obviously there's a lot here, but the one that we know the most about is the curtain in the sanctuary being torn from top to bottom. And I don't know about you, Shannon, but I was an adult when I realized what this meant, even though I'd grown up in church my whole life. And I had a a vague sense of, oh, this means that God was opening entry into his presence. Like I had kind of that idea, but I didn't entirely understand why or how an in-depth study of that is probably beyond the scope of our time (laughs) here together. The Bible project has a great video on this though, but in short, starting from the garden of Eden, when God exiled Adam and Eve from his presence, he placed angels to guard that entrance into his presence. And then with the tabernacle, we see angels kind of woven into the tapestry, guarding his presence. And then in the temple, we see that same thing with Solomon's temple. There are angels on that curtain that go from the top to the bottom because sin cannot enter God's presence. And so again and again, there are these angels with swords crossed saying, keep out on penalty of death. Mm-hmm. And only the high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies and only once a year and only after he had sacrificed to cover his own sins. Like there were such high stakes here. Mm-hmm. And this symbol of when Jesus dies, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. It means that once and for all, that separation between mankind and God in his holy presence was bridged through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews does a beautiful job explaining how the priesthood in Israel had been a prototype that was set up to point to Jesus, how he is the perfect high priest who doesn't have to make sacrifices for his own sins, who doesn't die. We don't get another priest. Like It's not a once a year type thing. No, he is the great high priest who has gone before us. I think Hebrews four says he is the one who has encountered and and fought against and endured all the temptations of mankind so that he is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses. So we get to come before the throne of grace with boldness to find mercy and help in time of need because in his death, Jesus became our great high priest who opened the way to the father. Hmm. So we go from alienated to brought near in a moment. 
And there's just this immediate access. I love that. And, and the astonishing thing too, was this curtain. It was, I don't have the details in front of me, but it was thick. It was not something you could tear easily. And it was tall. It was not anything that anybody, any human could have torn. (laughs) This was God opening access to himself. And then we see the rocks are splitting. I mean, that doesn't happen. There's an earthquake. There's this shaking and, you know, I, I kind of see this juxtaposition here of for those who are in Christ, there is this immediate access to our God, but for those who reject God, the whole world is going to be shaken and we need to feel that shaking that moment. And what's at stake if we reject what is happening here in the cross. And if we go on as these soldiers, just joking about it, mocking the name of Jesus, using his name in vain. If that's our approach to this cross, our whole world will be shaken. But, but then we see some reactions to Jesus that are astonishing. The author here is showing us these reactions to, to cast light on, okay, here's what happened. And here's where these soldiers who are joking around, oh, let's see if Elijah will come. Here's how they move. And they, they come into clarity. How is their reaction here astonishing, Ashrita? I mean, we have such a broad range, right? There are those who hear like the centurion and those who are with him terrified, like, wait, this wasn't just a man and a proper acknowledgement that this was the son of God. But also we know from later accounts with Jesus' burial and what happened after he rises to life that the high priests, the, the other priests who were there, the Pharisees did not interpret these actions in the same way. They still did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. Still there's darkness. There's an earthquake. Dead bodies are rising and Jesus is out. They, They can't find him. He's not in the tomb. And still that's astonishing. Is it not? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I was going to say there's literally nothing else (laughs) that could have been done at this point. And I think Matthew, the, the writer of this gospel is very purposeful here with what he's doing because he, he likes to bring in a lot of old Testament quotations. He likes to show how Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies, how he, even though he wasn't the Messiah figure that the Jews had expected, he fulfilled everything that was expected of the Messiah, but not in the way (laughs) that they thought. Right. But you were talking about juxtaposition. I mean, compare these pagan Roman soldiers and their acknowledgement of Jesus' divinity with just a few verses later in verse 62 and 63, the Pharisees are going to Pilate and they're saying, sir, we remember that while this guy was alive, this deceiver, he said, after three days, I'll rise again. So could you make sure to seal the tomb and make sure no one comes and steals him? Right. They there's that, that phrase that Jesus used having eyes, they still don't see and having ears, they still don't hear. And Matthew, the writer of this gospel is, is kind of pulling that thread and showing it is not his own that received him. 
He came to that which was his own, John says, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And here we see this beautiful picture that even though Jesus came first to the Jews, it is in his death that we see the Romans, the pagans, the outsiders acknowledge who he truly is. Bringing in, if you go back to those Psalms that we quoted earlier, both of them end with this promise that all people around the world will recognize God and that he will welcome them in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's been the thrust of Jesus' ministry all along, coming to the Jews first and yet opening the door to the Father for all who would believe. Mm-hmm. That curtain being split open for you and me too. I'm not Jewish and yet I have full access. So what will change in our lives if we live like this story is true? Like this is a true story that actually happened. And it's not just a physical story, but it's a spiritual story. What changes when we accept this as truth? I mean, this changes everything. And that sounds dramatic, but like, this is the moment that Our sins are covered over by the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. We talked about how Jesus is our high priest, but he's also the lamb of God in taking our sins upon himself. He has allowed for us to receive in exchange his perfect righteousness. And so this is that pivotal moment that history turns on, followed very closely by the resurrection. (laughs) Uh, These two moments together change everything, that the whole trajectory, the whole movement of history and the narration of mankind has been pushing toward these two moments, the crucifixion and the resurrection and, and everything that has come afterwards, even our dating system, our calendar system is around the life of Jesus. But also because this is good Friday, I want us to also sit with looking at how Jesus endured darkness and looking at how he processes betrayal and hurt and hard emotions. I think Believing this is true changes the way that we encounter those hard emotions. Because when when we don't have the words to pray, we can borrow the words of the Psalms. We can still make time to be still with God, to allow for his spirit, right? We talked at the beginning, groaning on our behalf, resting in his loving presence, even if we don't know how things are going to play out. And also just the assurance that because of what Jesus did, we have free access to the father. And so we can come to him in the dark moments, in the hard moments with those heavy emotions that we can't process by ourselves. We don't have to ignore them. We don't have to run away from them. We don't have to cover them up and pretend we're not feeling them. Jesus gives us permission to feel all of that. And in the end, to do what he did, he entrusted his spirit to God at the end of our prayers. I I love just ending with this declaration, God, I trust you. I'm going to choose to trust your faithfulness, to trust that you are who you say you are, and you will do what you said you will do. And that's what Jesus did with his last breath on the cross. And I think that's what we can do in those hard moments too. So living like it's true is experiencing the darkness and running to the Psalms. 
opening the truth and feeding my soul with the truth and ending that prayer with God, I trust you just like Jesus did. I love that. Now, what if, what if we live like this isn't true? How do we today live as though this is just a fictional story? The temptation might not be necessarily to pretend it's not true. I think most of us would probably say like, oh, give lip service. Like, oh yeah, I, of course this is true. I think the bigger temptation is to live with unbelief in our hearts in the sense that this was true for Jesus, but I'm not sure that it's true for me. Like Jesus could be this honest and raw and vulnerable with a father, but I'm not sure the father wants to hear that from me. Like, I, I think maybe God wants me to plaster on a, a smile and, and be grateful and count my blessings and choose joy and do all the great things. Like believing that that is what God expects from us and that he doesn't welcome us. He doesn't invite us to bring the dark and the heavy and, and the hurtful to him. I think that might be the greater temptation mm-hmm. to not believe that what Jesus modeled for us here is something that we are allowed to do. But I would challenge you, this is exactly what Jesus died for, is to open the way to the Father so that we can bring all of ourselves to him. The, the hard, the hurt, the dark, the heavy, he wants to hear all of it and we can find hope and rest in him. That's beautiful. Asherita, what would you say to a listener who sees themselves in those mocking soldiers, or maybe they have a friend or a loved one who they see in those mocking soldiers? Um, what encouragement would you give them? As long as you have breath you are not too far gone. And we don't necessarily have the after story of the centurion, you know, the one who maybe went from the mocking to the repentant, but we do have the story of Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. We don't necessarily have him placed at the scene, but realistically he probably was here. He was a student of Gamaliel who was one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And so Saul very likely was one of those here at the cross, mocking Jesus, saying he made himself up to be the son of God. And look, he's not, he's a failure. And we see him later persecuting those who followed Jesus, killing them, imprisoning them, giving his consent to Stephen stoning. And yet when he has his encounter with Jesus, when Jesus prompts him, why are you persecuting me? It's a 180 turn Mm -hmm. for Saul. Because no one is too far gone for Jesus as long as you have breath. And so if that's you listening to this today, cry out to Jesus, invite him to do his work in you, to do what he wants to do in your heart, whatever that looks like. And if that's not you, but someone you love, maybe a child that has walked away from the faith that has grown up hearing these stories and now they treat them like fiction, or maybe it's a spouse or a parent or a sibling or a coworker who mocks the story as make-believe, be the one who loves with the love of Jesus. 
oftentimes they don't need to hear our preaching and our teaching and our telling them like, oh no, you should really believe this. It's true. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that work in their lives. And you continue praying for them and loving them. Be the one who lays down your life for them, who loves them with the love of Jesus and watch as God works in his time, in his way to draw them to himself. And that is the good in Good Friday, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. It was a joy to be with you today. Thank you for having me, Shannon. Hey, I hope that you will take some time to do just as Asherita suggested and open your Bible, spend some time alone with God. God does not expect you to plaster on a smile and choose joy and count your blessings when you're experiencing those dark emotions. That's not what we see Jesus doing here on the cross. Jesus died to give us entrance to the Father so that we can bring all of ourselves to Him. So I invite you to take some time in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. That's the passage that Asherita and I talked through today. Also, the two different Psalms that she mentioned, we have linked to all of those in the show notes, along with Asherita's brand new book, Prayers of Rest. And Asherita has generously offered to give away a free copy of this book to one of my listeners. So here's how you can win. You can either share this episode on social media and tag me, or you can go to any of my social media posts and tag a friend. One more reminder that we won't have a retelling episode this week, but I'd love to invite you to check out that bonus episode on sharing the true story of Easter. We have just one more episode in this Easter series. I'll be back on Wednesday with Erica Van Heitzma to talk about the true story of the empty tomb. And oh my goodness, you will not want to miss this exciting conversation filled with so much hope. So plan to join me again on Wednesday. I can't believe we're almost to the end of this series. Have you enjoyed it? I sure hope so. And if you have, I would love for you to rate and review the podcast. This helps it to be seen by other people. Thanks to Cade Popkin for providing our music here on the show. And thanks to you for listening. And now it's time to go live like it's true.